0: Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious, I'm Barry Vogel. When word that California had gold in its creeks and streams reached the United States of America in 1848, fortune seekers from all over the world soon began to arrive in California by boat, covered wagon, and on foot. Some people made their fortunes by selling provisions and services but very few actually found enough gold to take home. And some people wrote stories about what they saw. Louise Smith Clapp of Amherst, Massachusetts, using the name Dame Shirley, wrote detailed and vivid accounts of the life and ways of the gold seekers and of mid-19th century California. In this, the first of a two-part archive edition of Radio Curious, we talk with Dame Shirley in the person of Kate Magruder, a Chautauqua performer and participant with the California Council for the Humanities Sesquicentennial Project, Rediscovering California at 150. In these conversations, you'll notice that Dame Shirley's description of California natives at that time are not at all appropriate. Dame Shirley, welcome to Radio Curious.
1: I'm glad to be here.
0: One of the things that I found interesting in uh, reading California history and I'm interested in your observations is the concept that when people came to California uh, in the middle of the 19th century, they changed California. But California also changed the people that came here.
1: That is so true, and you may have noticed in my letters home to my sister that I made several comments to that effect. One of the things I told her was that I had never heard as much profanity in my life, as I heard in the mining camps when I was living in the Feather River mining camps in 1851 and 52 with my husband. Men who would never have cursed in their lives, I'm certain of it, gentlemen, when they were in the mining camps, seemed to clothe themselves in curses as a garment. They, they of course, no one would even think to swear in front of a lady but you see we were staying in the empire hotel which had canvas walls and so i could hear everything and i heard the most astonishing and if they weren't so blasphemous they would have really been grotesquely sublime curses i remember hearing one man say to another out on the street just let me get my hands on your carcass once and I'll use you up so small that God Almighty himself won't be able to see your ghost. I heard that.
0: Why? Why did people speak this way in California and they wouldn't speak this way in their home?
1: There seemed to be a free, unconventional feeling in California. People felt that they could do whatever they wanted because, of course, no one was going to tell on them.
0: There's no telephone.
1: There was no — letters took months to reach home. Very many people were there on their own, and so word was never going to get back to their families what they were doing. And so there was swearing, there was drinking, of course there was gambling. It was all in that tumultuous mood, and it was a wild life that held a certain charm that my friends back in the States couldn't begin to understand. I was appalled by it, but at the same time I was intrigued by it. You went
0: to uh, college in Massachusetts.
1: Yes, I went to Amherst Academy. and You had a, a fairly
0: formal and probably traditional education.
1: Classical education
0: why did the people who come here abandon what they were taught by their homes, by their communities, by their families?
1: I don't know that they abandoned it. I think that they probably held it within them. They forsook
0: it for a while.
1: It seemed to be in the air. Many gentlemen apologized for instance for their swearing to me they said that it became a habit for them that they weren't even aware that they were doing it and i i thought that that was probably true now as far as their drinking the prodigious drinking that went on around me i i really couldn't blame these young men and they were mostly young men what age i would say 22 was an average age they were so lonely they were so Weary the work was so difficult down there in the mines it was it was excruciating
0: work to, Let's stop here for a sec Tell us about that work How difficult was it What did they do that was so excruciating?:
1: Well from dawn until dusk they were digging deep holes in the earth often looking for gold with picks and shovels with picks and shovels with picks and shovels lifting out buckets of dirt buckets of mud they were working in the river in the feather river gorgeous river absolutely freezing water up to their knees if not higher in freezing water hour after hour after hour laboring carrying out rocks and mud Bucket after bucket after bucket with very little return, I might tell you. There were those few, of course, who made the great strikes, but very few men did. And so there was this back-breaking work for very little money, and what money they made they often squandered in the gambling houses and on liquor.
0: It was each person working for himself?
1: There were a few of those, but when my husband and I were there in 1851, Many men had begun to form companies, you see, had begun to go in together to pool their resources and to work together because they needed more men on a particular project, especially when they were building the flumes. And so there were companies of men, and they would call themselves after their home state. So there was the Illinois Company, the Tennessee Company, the Bunker Hill Company. And, and very, few, I, very few men found gold while I was there. You speak of
0: the loneliness of these men. There were very few women. Were you, as a woman, lonely?
1: Ah, no, I was never lonely. Lonely for the
0: companionship of other women, I mean.
1: Not particularly, no. I, I had much to entertain me. I was fascinated with the life that I saw around me, and I would spend much of my day walking around and observing it and talking to the miners and taking hikes or going, down the river to other mining camps and visiting. And of course I wrote. I spent a lot of my time writing my letters to my sister. And we had company, people who would come to our little cabin and sing with us and talk with us. And we had, we had a great deal of company. We, I had rather a salon there in my little log cabin on Indian Bar. So no, I was not lonely. I was not lonely one bit.
0: You made observations of the Native women uh-huh. What their life was like.
1: Well, I observed I observed these remarkable creatures. I I think I wrote about it in one of my first letters to my sister, a group of women who I saw when I was in the stagecoach heading up to Indian Bar from Marysville. I could see them out my window of the stagecoach, and they were collecting flower seeds, these women, and they were naked except for a bunch of grass that they had, gathered around their waists that hung down to about the middle of their thighs and they had each of them two large conical baskets very deep about three feet deep i might say and they were one of the baskets was attached to their back by a leather, leather thong around their foreheads and the other basket they carried in their hands and they walked along side by side sweeping the basket in their hand across the tops of the grasses collecting flower seeds which i learned made up the food of this miserable creature they would mix these flower seeds with grasshoppers and pounded acorns for their food and as they collected these seeds they collected about a cup of seeds and then they would pour it into the basket on their back you see until that basket on their back became filled and then they would take it home and store it and i was struck by the beauty of the bodies of these women they had the most beautifully shaped limbs of any people i had ever seen they were so graceful and their baskets were so beautifully made And I thought that was extraordinary, when I thought that they were the handiwork of these miserable wretches, that these baskets were exquisite, and their bodies were glorious, but their faces, they reminded me, for haggardness of expression, of Macbethian witches, I must tell you. They did not look anything like the noble savages from the East Coast that I grew up reading about, of course, in the Leather Stocking Tales. They resembled those Indians not at all. This was a different creature altogether.
0: Well, you're saying there was no twinkle or sparkle in their eye, or they looked unhappy in their, in their face?
1: Yes, it was a it was a rough, frightening look to their face. Actually, it was not beautiful. There was no beauty in that face, though there was, as I said, extraordinary beauty in the shapes of their limbs and the, and the way that they moved i saw i saw one young woman out of when i was on my way to Richbar. i stopped in a rancho and a group of indians came in a herd of indians came in to stare at me and there was one young girl in that group who reminded me of cleopatra she was so beautiful but she was the only beautiful indian Girl that I saw in my whole time, they, there was just a—it was a different being, a different creature altogether.
0: I want to take a moment and tell our listeners that I'm talking with Dame Shirley. That's a pen name for Louise Clapp. She lived in uh, California in the 1850s to about the 1870s and wrote many letters uh, about what life was like. You're listening to Radio Curious and. I'm Barry Vogel. Dame Shirley, the women, the Native women who you saw, uh, do you think that part of their distress was caused by the white people who came and were invading their life and their land?
1: Well, I never considered that. They For instance, 15... lived so differently than the white people you see. they lived a very rough and primitive life that they continued living while we were there in their conically shaped houses made of bark they would crawl through the doorways they would low doorways and i i had a friend who visited one of their camps and these indian camps and he my friend went in through the doorway and said that there was no furniture at all in this house, that there was just a big flat rock on the floor with indentations in the rock, and that was where they pounded their acorns, you see. And the and there was a hole in the top of the house where the smoke, top of this habitat, where the smoke from their fire would would exit. And my friend also said that these people were so... Filthy! That when they would go outside, if it rained, she thought grass would grow on their arms. So I, I, they were, they were, they were creatures. They were, they were almost superhuman in their, in their movements, in their grace. But I don't think we had any effect on their lifestyle. Was
0: there much connection between the white people who came and the natives? Much a, socializing? Oh no, there was no, or,
1: there was no socializing. Some, there was no common language. No, well, the language of this primitive people, I think, included 20 words, 20 vocabulary words. That was, that was all a very guttural language. And often I would invite the Indians into my home because I was curious about them and I enjoyed and studying them, and they would come. Oh, yes, they would come, and I would often share with them little things that I had. They, they were very interested in the pins that I had. I would often give them papers of pins. Uh, but And some did work in the mine, some did work uh, mining for some of the other miners, but there was no socializing.
0: I'm real curious about your letters. You copied each letter And kept a copy for yourself before you mailed it. Yes, I did. Why did you do that? Were you intentionally preserving the history that you were recording?
1: Well, that's a very good question. That's a very uh, canny question. I wanted to keep a record of what I was writing because I knew. I knew it would be of great interest to my sister back in Amherst. She was extremely interested in anything about California. Everybody in the states wanted to know about California, so I wanted my sister to know what I was seeing, and then I thought that it might be interesting to other people as well. I had already published some essays and some poems in the Marysville Herald before I'd come to the mining camps, and perhaps I had in the back of my mind that these letters might be interesting reading for a larger public as well.
0: Well, indeed they were. They were published in the Pioneer magazine from 1854 to 1855.
1: Yes, that's right. How did that happen? Well, I knew Mr. Ferdinand Ewer, who was a marvelous man, a, a very fascinating fellow who had been an editor of the Alta California newspaper. He'd been a, a theater critic for that paper and other papers in the San Francisco area. and he was a friend of a good friend of mine and we all would often have suppers together at mrs congdon's boarding house and this is
0: in san francisco in san
1: francisco once i returned to san francisco from the mining camps this was in late 1852 1853 and he told me that he wanted to start this new literary magazine and he asked me if i had anything to contribute and i showed him the copies of my letters and he was interested enough to publish them um, in serial form. You see, once a month, one of the letters would appear in the Pioneer. And interestingly, though I think coincidentally, after each of my 23 letters was published, the Pioneer folded. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Ewer had other things he wanted to do.
0: Coincidentally. Yes, coincidentally. Yes. But the, after the Pioneer folded in 18... In, this is 1856, yes. 1856 yes. Yes. now. Yes. You remained in San Francisco.
1: Yes, I did. I remained. What was San Francisco like then? Well, such a, a town. I I grew to love it very much. And it changed enormously, of course, over the years that I was there. I, I came there in 1850, when it was mostly a collection of ramshackle tents and boarding houses. and but the bay filled with masts of deserted ships because all the crews had gone to the mining camps.
0: And they just left the ships there? They just float. left
1: the ships there. And because there were so few places for people to live, because there weren't enough houses for the masses of people who were coming, many people just lived on the ships. They turned into little hotels themselves, floating hotels. And in those early years, there were rats everywhere. And I remember in 1850, a ship a ship from Mexico came in that was... Only loaded with cats <laughs> that, that sold for eight dollars or twelve dollars apiece because there were so many rats in the city they were at a premium those those cats and it was it was a, as I said, a wild and free and unconventional town. There were gambling houses everywhere, beautiful, wickedly beautiful gambling houses and it, there were fires because it was mostly a wooden a wooden. A wooden wooden, city. Really, a wooden city. And so the winter that we were there in 1850, it burnt three times that same winter, and the businessmen, like an indefatigable spider, just built it right back up again with stores, with products from all over the world. All kinds of people, you see, were in San Francisco coming in day after day after day. One would see people from all different worlds, speaking all different languages, wearing all different costumes. It was a remarkable, exciting, if wet, city. The we you
0: speak of was you and your husband. Yes. A physician?
1: Yes, yes, Dr. Clapp.
0: And at some point, uh, he chose a different path in life and Ah. went out into the ocean to the uh, Sandwich Islands.
1: Yes, he did. And you
0: stayed in San Francisco.
1: Yes, I did. Did you meet again with him? No, we never did reunite. He went to the Sandwich Islands. I believe you call that Hawaii now. And he worked there for a little while. He, he helped vaccinate in, in the Sandwich Islands. And then he went back to Massachusetts, where he was from, where we were both from. And he never returned to San Francisco.
0: The decades after he left uh, in your life, you were primarily in San Francisco.
1: Yes, I was there until 1878.
0: So it's that change that I'm interested in Ah, hearing you talk
1: about. ah. From when everyone came
0: the way you've just described it from all over the world with the colorful masses going to the gold country and beginning their trip from San Francisco, things began to change in the 25 years after gold wasn't the luxury.
1: Well, gold was not the luxury, but there was always an enormous amount of money in San Francisco. So San Francisco became, almost overnight, a very urbane metropolitan city. There were more newspapers published in San Francisco than there were in London by 1855. There were theaters and operas and and circuses and there were many, many literary magazines, many books published. There, It was a very urban city and it became more and more stable as more and more homes and buildings were built out of brick and iron. What were you doing at that time? I was teaching. I became one of the first public school teachers in San Francisco and I was very happy with that profession. I would teach during the day and at night I had the first literary salon in San Francisco an adult school, if you will, because I was very interested in teaching and in learning myself, and so I would offer lectures and classes on art history and architectural history. And these were
0: things that you studied and became knowledgeable about?
1: Yes, back in Amherst. And I loved to teach, and I would often organize uh, Shakespeare theatricals for charities. One of the very interesting periods in San Francisco, of course, was during the Civil War, that was an extraordinary time. There were heated heated debates between different factions. Most of San Francisco was made up of Northerners, but there was a very strong Southern faction. And so there were, there were arguments and there were rumors that there were Southern militias out in the dunes sh- forming up. And we would often have charity balls and charity theatricals to raise money for the Union Army.
0: Was it a mixed race city?
1: It was it was a mixed race city. There were not it became a s it became a refuge for the Negroes who wanted to come there, the colored people. But there were There were Chinese Asians. and Exactly, Asians as exactly, well. exactly. And of course Chileans and Australians and Kanakas from the Sandwich Islands and there was it, it was a polyglot.
0: Sounds like town. a wonderfully lively town.
1: It was a wonderfully there was never there was never a dull moment in San Francisco.
0: Well, Dame Shirley, I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious.
1: Oh, and it's my pleasure.
0: Before we close, I want to ask you the question I ask all of my guests at, at the end of an interview, and that is, could you tell us of an interesting book that you've read lately?
1: Ah, well, I I would have to say that the book that I return to time and time again is the complete works of Shakespeare. I never grow tired of that collection. It never grows old. I just was rereading Romeo and Juliet the other night.
0: Well, Dame Shirley, thank you for joining us on Radio Curious.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: And Kate Magruder, welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Barry. And I hope, you know, the one of the one of the most um, difficult experiences in portraying Dame Shirley to contemporary audiences are her comments about the Native American people. And you asked, and I also in just in my in my um, presentations as a Chautauqua performer, I always lay into my presentation as Dame Shirley her off-the-cuff, almost um, flippant comments about the Kankau Maidu, Maidu Indians she saw on her travels to Rich Bar and who were there around her because she did not have a clue about what was happening to those people. And she was a very, I didn't get a chance to get into it in this well, conversation. That's
0: why I asked you about the connection of the relationship between the people, social or otherwise. But mm-hmm. tell me what you were going to get into.
1: Well, what she was, Louise Clapp, Dame Shirley, was very uh, kind of avant in her distress over the Americans' treatment of foreigners in the camps there was a great deal of prejudice of course and prejudice and, and, and exclusion against, pre- prejudice and exclusion against the mexicans who were there against uh, there were very few asians in in her particular camp but so it was mostly against the mexicans against the spanish speaking people who were there there were people from all around the world in that tiny little camp mining camp where she was on the feather river and she saw an enormous amount of prejudice and brutality from her countrymen, the Americans, to the foreigners. And she wrote about it in her letters, and she was distressed and appalled, and, and it was hard for her to understand, and she condemned it. She was sympathetic, she was empathetic, but she had no clue. She did not see what was happening to the Native American people around her. Their culture, of course, as we know, was, was being destroyed, was being decimated with incredible uh, brutality and she didn't see it. And I wanted to, I, I, I include those comments because she was a, a you know, a, a genteel, progressive woman who missed that. That's why history unfolded the way that it did.
0: When you perform as Dame Shirley and present her in character, is there a message that you're trying to convey, an image that you're trying to convey, it, each performance is different.
1: Each performance is different, at, because each audience is different. But the underlying message that, that I want to get across is what, what a pivotal moment the Gold Rush was in our collective history. And not just California's history, but the nation's history. That it changed, it changed California, of course, and because it happened so quickly, and because the root of it was money, that there was a, 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 an intensity and a, and a recklessness and a giddiness almost. The insanity of greed, as one miner calls it in retrospect, looking at it, our national madness, he calls it. He said that this was the gold rush revolutionized America because we went from being a country of citizens, rural citizens, contented, To make a reasonable return on their toil, to being frantic for this money that could be made overnight, and that we once the gold resources were exhausted, we turned that attention to our other natural resources, and the greed increased. And And we see that happening. We see that happening, and so I want. It's very interesting for me to to like to go back to the gold rush and say, look, there's the germ of that right there.
0: Kate Magruder, thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. But again, before we close, can you tell us of an interesting book that you, Kate, have read lately?
1: Well, in this vein, I'll mention a book by Malcolm Rohrbaugh called Days of Gold. It's a fairly recent book on the gold rush, a fascinating look at how the gold rush affected this country. And he talks about the fact that this country was never the same again after the gold rush because of the emotional that it took on families. He talks about it being a cell division in this country as families split apart and never got back together again. It's a very wonderful book.
0: Kate Magruder, thanks for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you. Dame Shirley came to California during the time of the gold rush. She is portrayed in this archive edition of Radio Curious by Kate Magruder, a Chautauqua performer and participant with the California Council for the Humanities Sesquicentennial Project, Rediscovering California at 150. Dame Shirley recommended The Complete Works of Shakespeare by William Shakespeare. Kate Magruder recommended Days of Gold by Malcolm Rohrbaugh. There are over 500 editions of Radio Curious on our website, radiocurious.org. They're free to listen, download, and share as you wish. The email address is curious at radiocurious.org. And the phone is 707-462-6541. Christina Anestad is the assistant producer, and I'm host and producer Barry Vogel.